morning. Please be seated. We're on the record in Prime Core Technologies, case number Any objection? Does anyone expect to cross-examine Mr. Law today? Okay, hearing none, it's admitted. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Your Honor, what will be from our amended agenda today? Do you have a copy? Um, no, I don't, but I do recall looking at it. I did look at it. So if you just identify the motion. Okay, great. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Your Honor, number one on our agenda is the captions motion. Um, final approval of the caption motion. Uh, we received no informal comments or objections with respect to approval of this motion on a timely basis. We filed a certificate, uh, certification of no objection on the 18th, and we'd like to thank Your Honor for entering the order on this motion um, on the 18th at approximately 1 30. Item number two on the agenda is uh, the debtor's request for final approval of the utilities motion. We once again received no informal comments or formal objections to this motion and filed a certificate of no objection on September 15th. And we'd like to thank Your Honor for entering the order on that motion as well on the 18th. Uh, item number three on our agenda is our motion to amend the case caption in these cases. Uh, again, received no informal comments or objections and filed a certification of no objection on the 18th. Your Honor entered the order on the 18th at document number 130. Item four on the agenda is our motion to reject non-residential real property effective as of September 1st and abandon certain DNS uh, assets thereon. Uh, by way of background, the lease um, subject to the motion was the debtor's former headquarters. Uh, the payment for that lease was $120,000 a month and due to the uh, prepetition reductions in force, the debtor's no longer prepetition to large footprint. Um, and also in light of the debtor's limited liquidity, the debtor's made the business decision to vacate the premises. Um, that is in the best interest of the debtor's estate. Uh, on, so how we did this is on October 31st, uh, we surrendered the premises to the landlord with an unequivocal statement to the landlord. We served the motion on the landlord. The committee consented to the release and uh, the debtor waived their right to withdraw the motion. Um, we received correspondence from the landlord um, asking whether the hearing would be scheduled um, and showing support for the release. Okay, well, here was my concern with the motion. It had to do with paragraph three of the proposed order that authorizes um, the debtors to abandon any property located at the premise free and clear of all liens, claims, encumbrances, interests, and rights of both parties. And it further provided that the landlord could dispose of abandoned property without further notice to any party claiming an interest in the abandoned property. Judges in this district have expressed concern with rejection orders that authorize abandonment of non-landlord property without notice and free and clear of third-party liens, claims, and encumbrances. The concern here is that third-party property can be disposed of without any notice to the third party. And frankly, the court doesn't have authority to strip a third party of its property rights without notice. 
In addition, the free and clear language provided in the proposed rejection order can't be approved in connection with Section 544 abandonment. Section 544 relates to a state property, and unlike Section 363, it doesn't provide for free and clear relief. So consistent with rulings of other judges in this district, the free and clear language can't be approved in connection with the abandonment. So with that in mind, and to promote consistency on this multi-judge bench, I would require modification of Paragraph 3. And what I would propose, and obviously the parties could confer and suggest alternative language, but I would propose that it read in Paragraph 3, the debtors are authorized to abandon any abandoned property located at the lease premise, which is what you have, and then strike to the end of that paragraph and instead write, and the landlord shall be free to dispose of such property in its sole and absolute discretion without liability to the debtors or any other, or any, sorry, consenting third party, and without notice or order of the court. Because I have no idea if there's third party property there and whether or not the third parties have been given notice and whether or not they consent to it. Ms. Rivera, let me make this more specific. This provides for additional context. My understanding is that all the property you don't believe is office furniture, old office furniture and desks and things like that, that are owned outright by the debtors and that you don't have, you searched and did not find any, I don't think it's a third party in this case. Okay. But we're happy to make that connection. If you don't think there is any, yeah, then that should not be an issue. Exactly. Okay. So if you could just submit a clean and black line under CERTA Council, that would be great, and we'll get it entered. And if you haven't heard it before, you'll hear it in other hearings with respect to rejection and abandonment. Thank you. I'll pass that along to my colleagues. That brings us to item number five on our agenda, which is our motion to establish bar dates. Through the motion, the debtor seeks, among other things, to establish a general bar date, governmental bar date, amended claims bar date, objection claims bar date, and also after filing the motion, we had originally, we had included 5039 claims as a general bar date, and we had determined that it was more appropriate in this case to state a separate preliminary initial, as an initial bar date. We first liked that with the due process before making that change, and Mr. Peacock did not have an objection. So we just added that into the materials and added a separate limitation of bar date notice. We also made some additional changes to the order in this case, requested the U.S. trustee, and created a publication notice, because while this motion contemplated publication, there inadvertently had not been included a separate publication notice. This meeting signed off on Jones' order, as has the U.S. trustee's office, and we filed a notification of counsel with respect to Jones' motion to dismiss. I'm happy to answer any questions Your Honor has with respect to this motion. I had a question and a concern. First of all, I think I appreciate that the committee consents and the United States trustee, and I heard the committee's counsel loud and clear about timing at the last hearing, but I think that the timing is too aggressive. And I 
would propose that the because it's a twenty one day which is the absolute minimum here and i appreciate the need for speed but i'm going to ask that the parties consider a thirty day deadline as to the general bargaining and i had a question with respect to the actual notices generally it's my preference that a notice actually state the date of a bar date and here it appears that the onus is on the creditor to calculate what the deadline is based on when the debtors do a certain action right and that to me is is difficult for creditors and it should be it should provide a date certain and I'm not certain how you can do that do you know when you anticipate following your schedules Okay, that would be terrific because I think it's very difficult for creditors to determine a deadline and then if there's an issue about when they received it and they don't necessarily get notice of when schedules are filed. So I just prefer not to have the onus on the creditors. Particularly, you have a pretty large creditor body here. And then the final question I have is, I was just curious, this is more for my information, but in this instance, it requires creditors to file an application or a motion for payment of an administrative claim and I was just curious why that is supposed to fill in out a form. No, I was just curious. I mean, sometimes you do a separate form for admin claims as opposed to requiring motions, but I was just curious what the thought process was. Your Honor, it's Darren Eisen from the Center for Debtors. I can speak to this. In the crypto cases that we've been involved in, what happens, there's millions of creditors, potentially former and current customers that will file a claim and many of them will tick off the box the same as a prior claim not really knowing. And what we've found, because we just wrapped up Voyager, which was the first large case that filed in the crypto industry, is that it was incredibly time-consuming to go through the claims reconciliation process, which you really need to do before plan confirmation to make sure you have money set aside for disputed admin claims, especially in a case like this where we don't have a year to run this case. And so to make sure that it's brought to our attention right away and to make sure everybody's on notice, that is the first path that we've taken here. I do think the bankruptcy code requires practice in this jurisdiction and many others is filing a claim and it's an admin claim. I don't really like that approach, but particularly in this case. Okay. I just was curious if there was a different thought process in crypto cases. And is there any issue with that also being a 30-day deadline? No. Okay. Thank you. That would be terrific. With those modifications, I'll sign the revised order when it's filed. Thanks.
Mr. Cudia, could I interrupt you a second? Certainly. And, and maybe this is better suited for the debtors' council, but are the individual names that are being sought to be redacted, are these customers? Are they creditors? Do you know what category they fall into? Okay, so I went back and I looked at my notes from the prior hearing and it was talking about 
end users. And I'm sorry, Mr. Cootie, I didn't mean to hijack your argument, but maybe I should inquire a little bit more of the debtors. So what exactly does it mean when it's a, an end user? But is it their name that's used yes. or is it the integrator's name? Okay. And so wait, before you sit down, I'm sorry. <laughs> so you seek to redact individual names of customers, um, employees, and end users. Is that yes. correct? Cust would be customers. customers, okay. And so, and the corporate identity of whom? Customers only? The corporate identity of, of customers who are corporations. Okay. And I think in the original software, we had noted that maybe I, I just pulled the proper because I, I want to revisit it. And I may have to take a little break to revisit it probably, but. Okay. Um, that Okay, thank you for clarifying. Mr. Cudia, my apologies. That's fine, Your Honor. And again, as far as the as far as the business customer, they do again make statements that they have agreed you know, that the party is told the item is confidential. That doesn't mean that that's something that the court should necessarily find using the standard of law itself. Also, I just wanted to add there are there are positives to disclosure of the names that sometimes tend to be overlooked. Uh, transparency in the bankruptcy process builds trust. The ability of a creditor to see how their claim is listed and scheduled without assistance from a claims agent or having to make a phone call. The ability of the creditors to organize among themselves and the ability for creditors to avail themselves of claims traders or other legal uh, ways of getting money now instead of perhaps money at some date in the future. Uh, and finally, on that subject, Your Honor, to the extent the court is inclined to grant the debtor's motion, we ask that it be time limited, such as the orders in FTX have been. Uh, circumstances do change as the case goes on, and I can think of, for instance, one of their cited reasons being employee poaching. That certainly will go away at some point during this case. So I would ask that consistent with FTX that uh, any orders uh, authorizing redactions be made uh, with a time deadline. Mr. Kudia, is the relief being sought by the debtors in this case any different 
than the relief that was granted in FTX? I don't believe it was, Your Honor. I believe the relief, it's, you know, I just uh, reviewed the, uh, you know, the latest motion for an extension of uh, the credit matrix, and it does kind of hit the same issues, customer list, um, safety of the customers, and that, that, the, that this one does. Is the fact that this debtor is a custodian of crypto different than the fact that FTX, for example, is a trading platform? Well, I, certainly there are differences, um, but uh, to be honest with you, I have not prepared in that, in that Okay. Area. I was just, and maybe that question is better suited for the debtor. You know, it, is this, given what this debtor does, is there, is there a different reason or is there less of a reason for protection? Well, of information? I'm not sure if I would put it as more or less of a reason. Certainly they have an intermediary between them, whereas FTX had a lot of direct customers. And on the mail service line, uh, the USP's position that the code and the rules just simply won't allow us, even though we sympathize with the debtor's position wanting to save money. Let me ask you, what is your position if, if a, an entity such as this does all of its communications by email? And, and let's assume for a minute that there's some type of agreement between the parties providing for email service. Would that be sufficient to meet the standard of providing consent for email? I'm not sure if it, it technically meets the standard, Your Honor, but I know that in some cases that has been relied on. Uh, I can think of uh, Fear Street for one, where that has been relied on as a, as a reason for email service, where uh, evidence was introduced that it was specifically in the terms of service with the website. Unless you have anything else, Your Honor. I don't. Morning. May it please the court, uh, Thomas Detweiler and Paul Bond, uh, joint counsel for Flea, along with uh, Brown Russell, uh, Ben Klingberg is also on the phone for me. Uh, very quickly and briefly, uh, as stated in Mr. Wall's declaration, uh, number 14, the confidential fourteen, the limited digital world, uh, and customers uh, are subject to FOIA and secret uh, audits. The, Your Honor, with regard to the two issues here,
So, Mr. Guttweiler, I've read the committee's pleading, and the committee raises some compelling arguments, but I don't have any substantive evidence on what's set forth in the committee's pleading, and I'm struggling with that. Well, Your Honor, I think you can take judicial notice, and this court is allowed to take judicial notice outside of this proceeding and look, for example, at the SPX case where there was an announced act in that case and the parade of horribles that occurred there. And the parade of horribles that occurred there has really hamstrings, but I think Your Honor can take judicial notice of those outside of the record of this case where the parade of horribles, for example, where that information was publicly disclosed. And it's not only the potential for email phishing and scams, but there's also a real potential, and I think the court can take notice of this, of what I'll call physical bullying, where individuals appear at the homes of customers and present themselves as being of a certain statute or category and then bullying or trying to bully the customer into doing an act that would be detrimental to them. And the customer may not be fully informed that the person doesn't have the bona fides to do what they're saying they're doing. So, Your Honor, I think you can take judicial notice of all of those acts that occurred in other crypto cases and SPX being a very good example. What about in terms of customer list in 107B? I have no evidence of diminished value. Your Honor, I think, again, taking judicial notice of the SPX case with respect to value, it was recognized there that the customer list was of considerable value. Here, I believe there's been testimony also to the Financial Institute procedures and other evidence that's been presented earlier in the case, Your Honor, with regard to the exponential timeline and what's sought to be achieved here, that the customer list is of critical importance and value to the debtor. And there may be others who are competitors who would seek to take advantage of that list and migrate customers away. So I think you do have evidence in the case, not directly today, in the sense of a witness testifying to that. Counsel can talk about Mr. Wall's declaration. But I do believe you have sufficient evidence before you with regard to the bid procedures and otherwise that this customer list of the debtors is of extreme value and it will be diminished if it is out there in the public. And that is a critical aspect, Your Honor, of what's trying to be ultimately accomplished in this case as we move forward with a sale or otherwise. Thank you, Mr. Duttweiler. I don't know if Your Honor has any other questions, but the committee fully supports. Let me ask a question. If the court were to grant this relief on a limited basis as the United States trustee has set forth, what would the committee's position be on the length? With respect to the SPX type of order, Your Honor, I can have to confer with the debtors' counsel to make sure that we're all on the same page. But that certainly is a possibility, but we want to confer first to make sure that 
there is a limitation that the plans most importantly that there will be an opportunity for the debtors to come back before your honors to seek to extend that deadline or that timeline if need be and again when we look at post confirmation post effective date you know there's real concern there too is that creditors will be out there and they'll be looking for every opportunity to take advantage of our customers so to the extent your honor is inclined to go with the SPS type order certainly would want the debtor to have the ability to seek to extend that time period thank you thank you Do you want to point me anywhere in particular in the transcript? Celsius, which I guess is a lender, right? Right. So are those situations different? No, I don't think so. I think this is something that is going to affect the entire cryptocurrency industry, no matter what the creditor is doing, what the customer is doing. I think there's always going to be customer lists, and they're always going to be unique to your list of risks being disclosed. With respect to the timing, the time limit that the U.S. trustee has suggested, Mr. Gordon testified that to serve the notice of connection alone would have cost $10.2 million. And that we are going to serve the sale notice, we have served the sale notice, we're going to serve a bar date notice, we're going to serve a notice of confirmation hearing eventually, and just the notice of connection alone is enough to sort of eat up our entire budget. With respect to service, 
obviously if you drop something in the mail, theoretically, you'll get return mail saying it was undeliverable. What process is in place for undeliverable email? Your Honor, we do get the mail track for undeliverable emails, and we have been working with Shutter and the company to find alternative emails. In certain circumstances, the problem is that the contact person at a particular company is no longer there, and we need to find a new contact person. Um, so we've been working to resolve those issues. If we cannot do so, we, we serve them by mail. So if you get a bounce back and you can't find an alternative, then it's mailed? Yes. And if that fails, then we rely on the publication, publication rate. Also with respect to the time limit, we believe that the buyer will want this motion to be unfettered. Um, so we're going to concern it. And uh, you know, the parties disagree that this at a later date, but can certainly find a motion to do so. But we feel that this relief should be granted as set forth in the proposed final order. Your Honor, it's not to sell the team of transaction, but there are no, Just can you identify yourself yes, for the record? Aaron Asman from McDermott, the post counsel for the debtors. Um, there were events that happened yesterday morning. We're happy to put this in a supplemental declaration. Um, it involves the Voyager and Celsius case, which I think is directly relevant to the appealing motion that we have before Your Honor. Uh, in short, yesterday morning, and I can tell you this one because I'm, I was counsel to the Voyager Creditors Committee. I'm now counsel to the plan administrator in that case, so we're directly involved, but it's been made public now. Yesterday morning, emails went out to every single creditor in the Voyager case and every single creditor in the Celsius case. These emails look as if it came from the debtor, the claims agent in this case, and the claims agent in that case. You or I, I was fooled by it because I have creditors in the Celsius case. It looks like it came from askcredo.com. It literally says that. It has your logo, everything on it, and it makes it appear as if you need to click this link to change or get your withdrawal of some kind. And we've already received reports of Voyager customers who have lost significant money, basically what happened to the fishing machine. You click this link, they say, give us your digital wallet address to get your distribution. And when you give them your wallet address and you link it, you give them access to it, they immediately drain everything that's in that wallet. That happened yesterday morning. It's continuing through today. And the reason that they can perpetrate these scams is because they're able to get access to bits and pieces of information. Whether they pull together your first and last name from this case, they pull different, you know, where your address is from another case or from another source. It is frightening. Um, and this is not the first phishing scam that's happened, but this is the scariest one because I clicked on it. Nothing happened, thankfully. Um, but that's what's going on in all these crypto cases, and that's what we are trying to protect against. And these are people who have already lost money, right? Now they're just getting all their crypto taken from them, whatever they have left. And so I hope that context is helpful. I'm sorry it's not in evidence. I'm happy to follow up, but this is all happening in real time in the last 24 hours. Okay, well, let me ask one other question about email service. Does e is email service a what and done? I mean, other than if you get a bounce back? If we serve our email, we have a valid email service and we're complying with the, um, the provisions of the order, then yes, we consider that email to be received. All right, I am going to take a little break because I want to read 
the transcript from before. But so I'll take this under advisement so that maybe you can finish the rest of your agenda. The others don't have to sit here if that's okay. I will certainly let you know. Thank you. I just want to take a minute because I did, I looked at my notes from before, but I didn't revisit the transcript. Honestly, I assumed that would be further evidence. So I would return to that and make sure I've read it fully. No, I can, if it's going to be the same testimony, I'll just go read it. Does anyone object to proper? I hear no one. Thank you, Your Honor. If called testify, Mr. Law would testify that the company has an account at Texas Home Bank in the amount of approximately $1 million. He would further testify that the debtors are required by Nevada state law to maintain a $1 million capital reserve in a depository account at one or more Nevada banks in connection with their Nevada check charter. Mr. Law would testify that he has been informed by Western Home Bank Is unwilling? Unwilling. And that none of the Nevada trust banks have executed, executed UDAs. He would further testify that he's been informed the debtors reached out to their current security bond underwriter to ascertain the cost of securing a bond um, with respect to that $1 million at Western Home Bank. He would testify that it is his understanding the debtors have been proposed $1 million in collateral, so that would be $2 million total plus costs and fees associated with the bond. 
who testified in Tina Bond's examination of the account would not be feasible given the debtor's current cash flow past. She testified that Nevada's work charter is what enabled Bancroft to act as a retail trust company. She would further testify that the Nevada's work charter served as the foundation for the debtor's core business, allowing Bancroft to act as a custodian and transmit fiat and cryptocurrency in Nevada and other states. Mr. Law would testify that without the Nevada's work charter, the debtor's prospects, including a going concern sale, would be significantly hindered. That would conclude Mr. Law's testimony and would discuss the debtor's request for a further interim waiver at 245. Any cross-examination? Okay, I hear none. Thank you, Your Honor. So what we have done also to address Mr. Segal's comments was to pull out of the final cash management order the 345 requirements and put in a second interim, a separate second interim order. May I approach? Yes, please. Thank you. Mr. Graham, we shared this order with Mr. Segal and his committee and they had no issues with this. It's designed to extend our deadline, our waiver deadline, until the next omnibus hearing, which is October 5th. And for some reason that gets neutered because we put in language the later of, or the earlier of the 5th or a continuation of that hearing. And the trustee's office is okay with this language? Joseph Segal for the United States trustee, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Unless Your Honor has any questions, I'd be happy to upload that after the hearing. Okay, well, let me ask this. Where do we stand on other objections vis-a-vis an interim order, a second interim order? Oh, okay. Okay, so now I'll turn to the BMO objection. Actually, let's walk through the red lines, if that's okay, Your Honor. Okay. Do we have a copy? Actually, you might not have the latest copy. May I approach? Certainly. Do you have an extra copy? Thank you. So on page one, we just changed our address to reflect that BMO's new address abbreviated the premises of our corporate headquarters. On page two, we just added the interim order to the preamble. On page three, and it's the end of paragraph two, at the request of BMO Harris, we added those claims. This was something that was in the motion. This was the preferred language? Yes. Okay. Yes, the primary motion. When we get to paragraph five, I'd like to provide some context to that paragraph. It adds some additional language with respect to the things that the bank can do. It also, at the request of the committee, is all subject. We clarified it's subject to the final cap. And then at the end, you'll see there's the end of that paragraph on page five of the red line. 
there is a carve-out for making it clear that a bank cannot automatically debit its attorney's fees from the debtor's account banking accounts and that they do not have an allowed administrative priority or super-priority claim under the bankruptcy code. Some context for that, Your Honor. On September 5th, counsel for BMO sent comments to the form of final order. Among other things, they requested elimination of the cap in the final order. They also requested that the pro se make an order. A party to unilaterally auto-debit and otherwise deduct from the debtor's bank accounts their attorney's fees, and they wanted a super-priority administrative claim in the order. On September 7th, we reached out to counsel asking for precedent, and none of us had ever seen this outside of the context of a bid motion, a bid lender's request. We demand that we be in a bid order. On the 11th, BMO sent us an order from Williams Industrial Services, currently before Judge Shannon, and it's Mr. Chidi as the representative of the U.S. trustee in that case as well. The order did not support any of these provisions that were requested. I shared these requests with the U.S. trustee's office and committee the same day. And then on September 12th, we issued numerous emails and phone calls to try to come to a resolution. On the 13th, counsel filed its objections on the docket and requested the inclusion of language that was very different from the language originally requested and even different from the proposed language I had last seen from counsel. Following discussions with BMO's Delaware counsel, we were able to negotiate the language in paragraph 5. We have shared this form of order with the committee, the clerk, and your client at the U.S. trustee's office. And I believe, unless there are some issues. Okay, sorry. I will not speak to that. So this is contested? Yes. Okay. I will cede the podium to objecting parties. Good morning, Your Honor. Kenny Nix McConnell, Sergeant Taylor on behalf of Bishop. Good morning. As Ms. Tanniston indicates, I did not plan to speak today. I thought we were resolved, and maybe we are, but I think I need some clarification. We filed an objection that requested that the language, which I believe is now in paragraph 8, be added. It begins with notwithstanding anything. The contrary basically says that they're not going to use the money in the customer accounts. They put that in the order. We were grateful. We thought we were done. But now we're understanding through some emails, I actually just thought as I got here this morning, that paragraph 5, that apparently notwithstanding anything else in this order, might not apply to paragraph 5 such that there could be chargebacks or offsets against the money that they said the debtor's representative would not in fact be spent. So we need clarification on that point. Obviously, if they're purporting to charge bank fees against customer accounts, we still have an objection. If not, we're all good. I think I just need clarification from Mr. Keller on the next point that the debtor is understanding. Do you all need a break? Excuse me, Your Honor. I apologize. Do you all need a break? Okay. Just go ahead. Good morning, Your Honor. Marcy McLaughlin, Senator Chapman, Pepper, Hamilton, Sanders. On behalf of Anchor Point LLC, I rise to just reiterate the same issue as Bishop's counsel did, although I think we are resolved with BMO. But the language in paragraph 5 relates to all banks, and there are some customer accounts held by non-BMO banks. So the issue would be for those other banks, will paragraph 8 trump? And 
and customer accounts will not be used as guarantors as well. And who is your client? Anchor Coin LLC. Um, did they file written objections? So we we had informal discussions with the debtors prior to the objection deadline related to paragraph eight requesting that inclusion, and we're told that that language would okay. be in there. So Sorry, I just want to make sure I didn't miss something. No. Okay, Thank that's you. fine. I understand things are fluid. That's okay. I'm just making sure I missed or didn't miss something. Your Honor, to be, um, to be careful for Anchor Coin's point, I had requested that this relate only to BMO Harris, but BMO Harris requires that we just make it more general and include all banks. So all that is presented is to the Does that resolve the objections? Again, Your Honor, 10 minutes on behalf of Citrix. Um, I, I believe it does. Unfortunately, my co-counsel might <laughs> email me to confirm me was on the line this morning, but I believe it does. So yeah, we'll, we'll stand Do you need? Okay. Okay. Your Honor, may I ask you just to put the record? Um, debtors never issued that. We agree that paragraph 
any issue with the committee or the United States trustee? Okay, all right. I would think the parties want something in the order. So if you could just modify the order and submit it under certification council after um, the objectors have an opportunity to look at the proposed language. Consistent with Mr. Gellert's comments, yes. I'm looking at your interim order right now. Okay, I have no issue with the interim order. Yes, could you upload it so it's on the docket for people to see? Um, I would like to take a break um, to look at the transcript for the prior hearing, the proffer. Um, would the parties um, be amenable to a short break or would you prefer that I get you back on the on by Zoom at a later time? Okay, let's take a short break. I'm gonna um, endeavor to return back here no later than 11.30 and hopefully before that. Okay, all right, we stand in recess.
Hick. Thank you all for your patience. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity um, to review the transcript. I did review the uncontroverted testimony of Mr. Law that was presented at the first day hearing through proffer. No additional evidence has been presented. The names of individuals sought to be redacted include here both customers, employees, and vendors, and others. Uh, with respect to customer lists, they are protected under Section 107B as a trade secret or commercial information. Mr. Law testified that customer information is highly proprietary and would give competitors an unfair advantage. He explained that confidentiality agreements govern the relationship with integrators and that customer data and confidential information is property of the integrators and the integrators retain all legal rights with respect to customer data, including confidential information of end users. In addition, the value of the business is maintained and maximized by ensuring competitors are not able to solicit customers. Here, debtors are contemplating a sale and their customer list is potentially a valuable asset of the debtor's estate. Mr. Law stated it would cause irreparable harm to the restructuring efforts if the information is disclosed. As a result, customer lists, which include integrators and end users, will be redacted. With respect to employees, Mr. Law testified that current and former employees have been threatened and targeted attacks in the cyberspace are not uncommon. In addition, employees may be poached. According to Mr. Law, employees have irreplaceable knowledge and specialized skill critical to the debtor's restructuring efforts. Given the potential risk of injury to employees and the restructuring, the court will permit redaction of their names and other PII under Section 107C. Finally, uh, with respect to creditors, if they are a creditor who is an institutional creditor or a corporation or individuals such as vendors or the like, then their full identifying information should be disclosed as required by the bankruptcy code. With respect to service, under the unique circumstances of this case, and based on the commercial agreements that the debtors have with integrators and end users, as cited and quoted by Mr. Law, the court will permit email service. However, as represented by debtors counsel, if email is returned as undeliverable, and a new deliverable email address cannot be found, debtors must effectuate service by first class mail, overnight mail, or hand delivery. Also, an appropriate affidavit of service or certificate of service must be filed with respect to all service. Additionally, if any party who is receiving email contacts the debtor and requests mail service in lieu of email, the debtors must comply. Are there any questions with respect to that portion of the ruling? And um, just one thing, the current order provides that if a customer opts into physical mail service or uh, files a 3002 notice that we that already provides that will serve them. Consistent with the local rules. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, and with respect to uh, the corporation, we'll carve those out in a revised form of order and put them in the certification. Okay. And then the only other thing I would ask is that we set a status conference on this issue in 90 days. 90 days? 
So on around after November 19th, or December, excuse me. Um, Anything further for today? Okay, again, thank you all for your patience. Have a great day. Um, we stand adjourned.